starting uh, today off a little differently than I had actually planned, so I'm going off script. Who knows what the rest of it's going to be like. Um, but I, I felt like this story just kind of fit in with where we're going in what we're going to talk about today. My father-in-law is in the stages of dying. He's actually at Holy Spirit Hospital right now. Um, he's served God his entire life as a pastor. And when I was visiting the other day, standing at the foot of his bed, watching him in his weakened state, the thought struck me, he's going to be with Jesus soon. I mean, we, we, we think about that future, we think about being with Jesus one day, and I looked at this man and thought, that's soon. And whatever baggage he's carried throughout his life, will be gone, and he will be in fullness of joy with his creator. And I got to admit, I had a moment of jealousy. Not, not that I want to die soon or anything, but, but to be with Jesus, that he's going to experience that soon, that he spent his entire life in service to God, and, and the best is yet to come. You know, what we want to take a look at today is the reality that our relationship with Jesus gets to be the most thrilling and fulfilling that we could possibly live out. We've been going through the series, looking at the book of Song of Songs and talking about marriage and, and talking about what God's heart is and God's intention is in our marriage relationships. And in this world today, you know, so much emphasis is put on romantic relationships. And I find even in the church, we talk about marriage a lot. But not everybody ends up living in that kind of relationship. If you're single or you know someone who has, you or they have likely struggled with some of those desires to have that kind of intimate relationship, to be with someone, and those have not been fulfilled or met. And so the, when we put so much emphasis on marriage, that person or persons could be left feeling, if I'm not married, is my life less important? And what we want to look at today is a reality that marriage is not the only kind of life we're meant to live. And what the Bible has to say to singles is just as important in this world where our priorities seem to drift away from what God's heart is for us in our lives. As I said, while God created the marriage relationship and has intention and intentionality, that was tough to say, um, and while marriage is a very important part of our human relationships, we see in Scripture that it's not the most important relationship that we're supposed to have in our lives. We see that a relationship with Jesus is meant to be the most fulfilling relationship that we could possibly have because he is so good so kind so loving so perfect that even if you stay single your entire life you haven't missed out because he is that great and as we look at these concepts for singles i think those of us who are married are also going to see some challenges in our devotion to god paul writes about this in first corinthians chapter 7 he says, 
Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. And he picks up later on in verse 32 saying, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Would you pray with me as we consider these verses? Father, as we come before your throne to learn from you today, I pray that you would teach us, that you would help us to see your priorities, what you want for us in our lives, and what will bring us the most joy, most fulfillment that we could possibly have. And so, Lord, I I just pray that you would speak to our hearts now. Amen. So as Paul is writing in this passage, he makes it very clear that he's not giving so much direction as he is advice. His concern isn't so much about marriage, but about our ability to be devoted to and focused on God. He makes the case that marriage actually distracts us from that focus, that it's okay to be married, but it's actually better to be single. That our time is short and nothing should distract us from the singular purpose of being in service to God. I'm married. I have two children. I love my wife dearly. I love my children dearly. I wouldn't want to live my life without them. But it is true that those relationships provide uh, relational responsibilities in my life that weren't there when I wasn't married. Not that I would want to change being married. I'm not saying that. Um, And and God, I've seen how God has shaped and worked in my life to make me a better man through those roles. But I remember what my life was like before I was married and, and my ability to focus completely on God. Paul says that those who live a single life do so to be more available to God. For some people, that's a direct calling in their lives, that they they feel that God is leading them to lead a single life, and sometimes that's gradually revealed. For other people, it's a season in their lives as they wait for marriage. And for others yet, it's more of a grieving in this world where death, divorce, unfulfilled expectations, those things are a reality. But that is a reality in which God is still present and he is sovereign over. He is still at work within that reality. One of the most difficult parts of our relationship with God is when he says no to our requests. The things that we long for, the things that we hope for, and he doesn't have those same plans for us. I remember when I was in college, I was in a brief dating relationship, and I thought this was the one. I was head over heels. I thought everything just seemed to line up perfectly, that this was the right person that God wanted me to be with. It didn't end up that way. At the time, I was heartbroken. Now, looking back, I could see how God, neither I nor she were ready for that, and, and, and God was working in our lives to take us in very different directions, and I'm grateful for the direction he took me in. But it's so hard when we long for something, we think we know what's best for us, but God has different plans. 
then we're either faced with the decision to go out and make it happen on our own or to choose obedience. And when I use the word obedience here, I'm not talking about, you know, settling for something because I didn't get what I wanted. Rather, I'm talking about submitting to God out of an understanding and trust that He has something far better for us than anything we could come up with. There's four words that if you're a parent in this room, I guarantee you've said. And if you're not a parent, that's okay. I guarantee these four words have been said to you. Because I said so. Those of you who are laughing are parents. I'm a parent, and so I know you've said those words. You've said them multiple times, probably. And again, if you're not a parent, you're a human being, you've had those words said to you because you had parents. Because I said so. Four of the most frustrating words for us to hear. Right? Because we want to know. It's not okay for us to just take it on face value. We want to know. We want to have it laid out for us. We want to understand. The truth of the matter is, though, we often can't understand. Sometimes the understanding is beyond us, or we're just not at the developmental place to, to have the understanding. But if you're a parent, you've said those words, and you've usually said them for one of two reasons or both reasons. The first reason is, you just need to obey me. Now, that's usually said out of frustration or anger, you know, with the, gr the grit teeth and the, you know, because I said so, that, that's when that comes out. Now, we need to be careful about how we communicate with our children when we're angry or frustrated, and that's a whole other topic. But the basic sentiment, you just need to obey me, is valid. Children need to obey their parents. That's a valid truth, even though it's not often realized, it's still a valid truth, and that's true in our relationship with God. We see throughout Scripture times where God is frustrated with His people because they choose to disobey. And it's not a picture of this angry tyrant, but more of a picture of a loving father who says, look, I know that when you disobey, you drift away from me. And because I made you, I happen to know that that's not good for you, and I want the best for you. 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than, the offering, than offering the fat of rams. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? It's also true the second reason we say those four words, you just need to trust me right now. You know, as parents, we often have insight and information that our children just aren't capable of possessing. And so we can't really explain to them the reasons. We just, you, just, you just need to trust me right now. And again, that's also true in our relationship with God. Talk about somebody who has insight and understanding beyond what we can have. Isaiah 55 says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. But we always think we know better. We always think we know what's best. We want to decide what's right and wrong in our lives. And it feels like we're giving something up when we choose obedience. And quite frankly, we are. We're giving up our will. 
Now, what is our will? Well, I looked up the definition of that and it says, the faculty by which a person decides on and initiates action. The faculty by which a person decides on and initiates actions. It's whatever it is inside of me that causes me to do what I do. That's my will. Why is it so difficult for us to give that up? I think it's at the heart of the tension between us and God. You know, the, the Bible speaks about that conflict between the flesh and the spirit, the flesh being that, that willful part of us, us wanting what we want, and the spirit, that part of us that does want to be obedient to God. In Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding." What is God's overall plan for our lives? I mean, he sees much further than we do, and his desires are about our ultimate fulfillment. And that is a relationship with him and reaching others in his name. And obedience is essential to that. Again, we, we tend to look right in front of us, and we don't see the ways that God is working through the situations that stand in front of us. And so obedience is about faith. You know, I find that it's a lot easier for me to obey someone that I can trust. You think about a work situation. If you have a supervisor or a boss, if that person has proven themselves to be trustworthy, they've proven themselves to be insightful, wise, to have good leadership, to really have the best interest of their employees at heart, it's a lot easier when they give you a task to say, yes, I'll do that. As opposed to a boss who has proven themselves to be inept, maybe narcissistic, Maybe they're just out for themselves and they don't really care about the company or the, their employees. There's a big difference there. Hebrews 11.1 1 is often quoted as a definition of faith, and it is a definition of faith. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. But it's important to understand that's not a blind faith built upon nothing. If you read Hebrews chapter 10, it's all about what God has done in the past. And so when we look to faith, our faith isn't built on nothing, but it's built upon our experience with God. It's built upon where God has taken us. It's built upon the experiences of others that we've seen. And so when we look back over our lives and how God has moved, when we look back and see how God has worked in this world, we can confidently look into the future, even though the future is not clear. Psalm 139 says, you saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. God's plans for us are intentional. They're not accidental. It's not like God says to the single person, well, you haven't met anybody yet, so I, I guess I'll make you single. It, it, God's purposes for us are intentional. If we can believe that God has made each and every one of us specifically and purposely or as Psalm 139 says, fearfully and wonderfully made, then we can trust that his plans are good for us. Even when your friends are getting married or your relatives are having children, when other people are experiencing some of the things that you long for in your life, we can still trust that God's plans are good. Have you ever had someone tell you, you just need to have more faith? Yeah. Now, that's usually well-intended, not usually well-received. I don't know anybody that when they're going through a difficult time, those words, you just need to have more faith, really hit them the way the person intended it to. I mean, faith, how do I know if I have enough faith? It's a little difficult to quantify, isn't it? 
Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. I can tell you, there's been many times in my life where I have figuratively tried to move a mountain, praying in faith, and the mountain didn't seem to budge. It was only later on, looking back, that I could see how God was working in that situation that I couldn't see at the time. I don't always understand God's reasons for allowing things in my life that I would, quite frankly, rather He didn't. But I've experienced enough to know that His reasons are good, and I can trust Him in that. I read a book by a man named Beckett Cook, and Beckett was a man who um, had pursued various relationships. He'd lived his life kind of going from relationship to relationship to relationship, um, brushing shoulders with the elite of Hollywood and kind of living that lifestyle. And in a spiritual journey, he came to a realization that God, in order for him to be obedient to God, he, God was calling him to live a single life. He said this, Obedience and faith are two sides of the same coin. He went on to say, My faith in Christ compels me to pursue a life of obedience. The thought of being disobedient to the one who took on himself the penalty of my sin makes me sick. The fleeting pleasures of sin are not worth the agony of grieving the person I love the most. I live in Linglestown, and if you've traveled anywhere around Linglestown, which I'm sure most of you have, then you've probably traveled on Mountain Road. Now, if you traveled on Mountain Road, coming south on Mountain Road, there's a particular point in the road where you take your life into your hands. <laughs> Those of you who are chuckling know exactly what I'm talking about. Mountain Road goes over 81. Now, there's an exit ramp coming off of 81. The people on the exit ramp have a sign there. It's called a yield sign, okay? Now, I, the, I wanted to know, what, what, what does yield mean? Yield means to give way to a superior authority. Give way to a superior authority. So in this case, the people coming off of 81 are to yield, they're to give way to the superior authority of the traffic on Mountain Road. But most of you know that they don't. I don't know anybody that's come off of 81 that hasn't just tried to plow right in. But this idea, I was thinking about that, that idea of giving way to a superior authority. The Bible calls that submission. When I was growing up, my parents were pastors, and in the church in which they pastored, they served, uh, they were called to go to Germany several times, and they served a total of 13 years of their career in Germany, not at one chunk, but in separate little times. And when I was a senior in high school, they received that call again to go back to Germany, which meant that pretty much I was going to graduate, and figuratively the next day they were hopping on a plane to go almost halfway across the world, and I was going to be on my own to go to college. Obviously, that meant sacrifices for me and for them. And I remember driving with my mother in the car, and as any teenager does, I took control of the radio, and I put in a cassette. Yeah, a cassette. <laughs> I put in a cassette of Stephen Curtis Chapman. Stephen Curtis Chapman is a Christian musician, and on that cassette was a song, For the Sake of the Call. The song is about... Um, people who had sacrificed, submitted to God for the sake of God's calling on their lives. And so we're driving, listening to a song. My mother had never heard it before. She's listening to it, and she turns to me, and she says, that's why we're going to Germany. And I knew. I knew, and I understood that even though it was going to be very difficult for me, that they were being obedient to God's calling in their lives. 
There's a common sentiment in our world today. Follow your heart. Just follow your heart. It sounds wonderful. Just be you, do you, follow your heart, do what makes you happy. It sounds great, warm and fuzzy. Problem is, as Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Adolf Hitler followed his heart. I would hope that we would all agree that that didn't turn out to be a very good thing. Obedience is about surrendering my heart and my will to God in full submission. We often think that we can't be content unless we have the things we want. I can't be content unless I get that job or that pay raise or have that relationship or go on that vacation or whatever it is. Contentment isn't about having our desires fulfilled. It's also not about having our desires eliminated. You know, I've prayed this prayer many times. I've, I've known many people who have who say, God, if you're not going to fulfill this desire, please take it from me. And God does that as he molds and shapes us, and as we mature, we find that our desires change. But contentment isn't about having those desires removed. We can be content as we surrender to God's direction in our lives. Jesus was content to go to the cross, even though he didn't really want to. When you read his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he basically is saying, Father, if there's any other way, I'm all ears right now. But then he ended it by saying, but your will, not mine, be done. His desire to do his Father's will overshadowed any personal preferences. So contentment is a decision, not a feeling. Our feelings are fickle. They come and go. Contentment is a choice. It's a decision. We sang a song earlier, I choose to praise. Even in the midst of whatever's going on in my life, I choose to praise. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That phrase, take up their cross, I read one of the commentaries I read on that, put it this way, what that phrase, take up your cross, means. To cheerfully receive, cheerfully receive, and patiently bear every affliction and evil, however shameful and painful it may be, whatever is appointed to you, whatever you're called to. And that helps us to understand what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12 where he says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. There's one author who was writing an article about singles in ministry, uh, and they said, but singles in ministry I have known have also come to the realization that their desire for marriage is one more thing that gets to be laid on the altar of living a surrendered life. They have also discovered exceptional grace to live life with much joy and an undivided devotion. So obedience is about faith. Obedience is about submission. And obedience is also about seeing our lives through his eyes. I love to play board games. Nothing makes me happier than to sit at table with my family with a board game in front of me. Monopoly is my favorite, so Saxinger family, you're on. <laughs> but there are a couple of board games that I really don't like, and they're classic board games. Chess and checkers. And I'll tell you why. 
I like a puzzle. I like figuring out a puzzle that's right in front of me. But I'm not a strategist. I don't like thinking 10 moves down the road. And in order to play chess and checkers successfully, you really need to be able to do that. And so that frustrates me. But you've ever seen a chess player, a master chess player, you know, they make a move and you may look at it and think, what are you doing? They're already anticipating their opponent's move. They're, they're 10 moves down the road in their mind. You know, we often say, doesn't God want me to be happy? And the answer is yes, he does. But it depends on your definition of happiness. You see, we tend to be very short-sighted in our idea of happiness. We think we know what's going to make us happy. And God has a much greater perspective on our lives than we do. He sees 10 moves down the road. He doesn't want you to be happy just because you get what you want, because you got the raise, or because it didn't rain that day you had a picnic planned. He wants you to be happy at your deepest core because of the trust that you have in him. French mathematician Blaise Pascal once famously said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in each of us. God knows that our ultimate happiness, our ultimate fulfillment is going to come from being focused on him and that is his deepest desire for us. And so when Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 7, it seems that he's saying, look, it's okay for you to be married, but being married puts distractions in your life from your ultimate purpose and fulfillment and focusing on your relationship with and service to God. Those who remain single are freed from those distractions, and that's actually an advantage. He's not downing marriage, but he's putting it into the realistic perspective that whether you're married or not, our focus should be upon God and his plan for our lives. The Scottish philosopher Alistair MacIntyre said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? What is the bigger story of our lives? What is our purpose? When we begin to see our lives through God's eyes, oh, there's an old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But we say, well, if God loves me, wouldn't he want to give me the desires of my heart? Christian author Lori Smith puts it this way. The fact that God hasn't given you a husband or wife at this point in your life doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It means God, in his love, is using your singleness to mold and shape you to be more like him and to draw you to him. Our culture paints this picture that you can't be happy, you can't be fulfilled unless you have the right person in your life and you have the right amount of money. And that is so contrary to God's purposes and heart for us. Our hearts were created for and long for something much deeper, much grander than that. Walking closer with God and enjoying the beauty of an obedient relationship with Him is the most important thing that we can be focused on. Everything else, including all of our human relationships, pale in comparison to that. I quoted Beckett Cook earlier and, and his story about being called to a life of singleness. And he often gets asked the question, well, isn't it unfair to, be, to have to be alone for the rest of your life? And I love his answer to that. I'm not alone. I am in a personal relationship with the king of the universe, the best and most exciting relationship I've ever been in. 
To put it plainly, feeling entitled to a nice house, a great job, and a fabulous romantic partner is a particularly American phenomenon. It's what we're told daily by television, movies, billboards, and magazines. I deserve this, I deserve that, is the common refrain. I have come to realize, as the Bible describes, that I deserve nothing. And yet, in my brokenness, Jesus came to give me everything. So being alone for the rest of my life is not unfair. What's unfair is that Jesus had to be beaten and crucified for my sins. What's unfair is that God had mercy on me, a wicked rebel. What's unfair is that I get to have an intimate relationship with Jesus. What's unfair is that on the last day, when he returns to judge the world, I will be declared innocent before a holy God because of Christ's righteousness. None of us know what God's specific plan is for our lives, and that's often a source of frustration. We want to know. We want to have it laid out for us, but God doesn't work that way. Faith isn't always easy, but we have plenty of reasons to have faith. We have God's promises in his word. We have our experience of God. We have the experiences of others. We spend so much of our energy trying to plan and control our lives. Choosing obedience actually frees us up to focus that energy where it really belongs. While we rarely know God's specific plan for our lives, we do know his ultimate plan, and that is to walk closely with him and to reach others in his name. And when we give ourselves over to obediently following him, allowing his specific plan to unfold as he directs it, then we can experience the true joy of fulfillment. Now, I spoke earlier about my father-in-law. And that moment of looking at him and having, having that moment of jealousy. Because the most fulfilling and thrilling thing is yet to come. There's a painting I love, and, and I apologize, I meant to do this earlier in the service, but we're going to show it now. It's called First Day in Heaven. A relationship with Jesus is what we were made for. And one day, we're going to get to do that, my father-in-law, very soon. I pray that that is at the core of each and every one of us and that that influences every other relationship we have. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you so much for how good you are. You are far greater and more incredible than, than any God I could ever imagine. And I thank you that you are so incredibly interested in giving us the best. Help us in our unbelief. Help us in our human frailties and weaknesses where we focus on what is right in front of us and we focus on the things we think are going to help us. Help us to focus our eyes upon you and to walk closely with you and to find the joy that comes in that relationship. Amen.